Welcome to Kids Considered, a podcast from UC Davis Children's Hospital, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. So let's get into part two, discussing autism spectrum disorder in children. We are joined by Dr. Sarah Dufek from the Mind Institute. In our last episode, we talked a lot about how autism presents in young children. We talked about um, how common it is and what things contribute to developing autism. And we look forward to our discussion today, talking a little bit more about screening, diagnosis, and therapies. General pediatricians screen all children for for autism using a tool called the MCHAT, M-C-H-A-T, the Modified Checklist for Autism in Toddlers. And they do this at 18 months and 24 months of age when the children come in for their well-child checks. How good is this as a good screening tool, and what should parents expect if their child's screen demonstrates some concerns for autism on, on this screening tool? So the, the MCHAT screener is very good, and it has really high sensitivity, and it, it's the most common screener used. And the screeners like the MCHAT were really, their job is really to cast a wide net to capture any children who may need further evaluation. So just because a child screens positive for concern for, for autism on a screener such as the MCHAT, it really just means that someone needs to take a closer look with a more comprehensive evaluation. And universal screenings are so important for this reason because we know if we catch autism early, children and families can receive intervention and that leads to a more positive outcome. And so the screener's job is to really do just that, catch kids who need a closer look. So, um, you know, coming up concern for autism doesn't necessarily mean the child has autism on a screener like that, but it does give you a really good place to start that um, we should take a closer look and track that child a little bit closer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we first give this at 18 months, but I'm wondering how early autism can be reliably diagnosed. Um, Can it happen before 18 months? And what are the first signs that a parent might see? Like, what are some of those questions that that MCHAT's going to ask that that might be red flags or or things that if they see earlier than 18 months, they may want to bring up to their pediatrician sooner? Well, that's what's tricky about autism, really, because we are able actually to really see compelling case of those diagnostic criteria that I just described, even as early as about 14 months. And uh, diagnosis is really stable, at least by two years old, for sure. It can be quite stable even before that. We're actually pretty careful in those very young ages, not necessarily because we would misidentify a child as having autism when they don't, but really more so we've noticed that symptoms may not be clearly present for a child at that time, at that 12 to 24 months time. And sometimes it's easy for you to miss a diagnosis at that time because a child can be doing quite well around then, but then start developing more ASD or autism-specific symptoms over time. And so we're just really mindful that, yes, diagnosis can be quite stable. Definitely after two, we can we can see it between 12 and 24 months, but we wouldn't necessarily give a child a super clean bill of health if they have been flagged between that early time, just to make sure somebody's really watching closely in case more symptoms start to develop. And then there are great resources out there for early signs. Um, Many pediatric offices now have 
handouts up on the wall, things to look for. And then obviously there's a very strong online presence now. And we know a lot more than we used to about these very early signs of autism. Missing developmental milestones can sometimes be a first sign. As you mentioned earlier, you know, that could mean a lot of things. And so it's just maybe missing those just general developmental milestones can be a sign to me. Perhaps we should look a little closely for things that kids get around this age with autism being one of them. And some of those early signs that may be more associated with autism are maybe like no babbling when we would expect babbling to occur. Um, We typically go by a rule of 16 gestures by 16 months. So things like waving bye-bye or, um, you know, blowing a kiss or um, using a finger to point to to look at things as well as request things um, to sort of share, like, look at that dog. Um, Babies are pointing right away. Maybe if you notice your child's not responding to their name or um, may not be giving or showing objects, like, you know, how um, babies, you know, when they even have a have a little, one of those little melty puff things that are delicious. They'll often sort of show it to you like, hey, look, I might not give it to you, but it looks delicious, right? So you see that shared joint attention happening. Being over-focused on objects can also be an indicator that we should look a little closer. Um, they Kids may u- be using objects in sort of repetitive way, spinning things. And, you know, again, each one of these things individually is not necessarily a slam dunk, but we want to look more closely if we see these early signs and have somebody's eyes who knows what they're looking for on that child. And then some children have regression. So that's another thing we look out for around that age, that um, having a loss of skills that were previously mastered um, is really important to keep track of. So the most common one is, is a language loss. So kids who use single words daily on a consistent basis, and then suddenly they don't use those words anymore. Um, but you can also see loss in other skills like eye contact or, or social smiling. Sometimes parents will report when we look back that their child was doing that in the regular playing peekaboo and, you know, imitating gestures during songs or something, but then they just stopped doing that when they were doing it pretty reliably before. So if parents have specific concerns, what are the best steps to take to get an evaluation? Pediatricians are the first line of defense for access to evaluation, for sure. In order for this to work, ideally, the families feel they have a supportive relationship with their pediatrician who takes their concerns very seriously. What we want to avoid is for practitioners and and families to take a wait-and-see approach that can be a real barrier to getting access to services. So it is really hard to catch autism in a brief doctor's visit often. Like that is really a challenging thing to do. And so practitioners often have to rely on information relayed by family members of that appointments. Um, you know, we've heard from a lot of families that it's very hard when families feel as though they're not being heard. And then that can lead to delays in um, diagnosis and treatment. We know that um, in the States, for example, the average age that a caregiver reports a symptom to their pediatrician is 17 months. So for kids who later got a diagnosis, the average age of the parent bringing up something about their child's development, it may not be autism-specific because parent may have never heard about autism, but they're bringing up something like, there's something not quite right here with my child's development, is around 17 months. But the average age of diagnosis here in the U.S. is four years of age. Four years. So that's a huge gap in time where the family could have been receiving services and support between 17 months and four years. And so we really want to close that gap. I mean, the early intervention is really important. It's a real opportunity to help these children. 
And I just wondering, you know, what can parents do when they bring that up, when they bring up concerns to the pediatrician? I've heard this time and time again where the pediatrician says, well, let's just reevaluate in a few months or something. What's a response that a parent can do to kind of push things forward then? There's those early red flag, early red sign for autism online, those checklists can be very helpful to bring to the appointment. Like, look at this checklist. There's a lot of things here and having specific examples of them really help. But then unfortunately, sometimes what needs to happen is families need to change doctors. So that doctor might not be a good match. If you really feel as a caregiver that they're not listening to your concerns, to me, that is a red flag for having ongoing challenges with that physician. And so I definitely encourage parents, you know, caregivers or parents to work on the relationship. Like, how could I advocate for myself and my child in this scenario? But sometimes I think it just might be a sign that that a new provider would be a better match. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about the red flags and screaming and, you know, parental concerns. So let's say that they get to the point where they see someone like you or um, here. We refer a lot to a place called the regional center to get a diagnosis. What does obtaining that diagnosis actually look like? And does it have to be done by a certain age or can it really be done anytime? So typically a good diagnostic evaluation consists of multiple components. So we ask the caregiver a million questions about history and development and current behavior. And we get a lot of information from the caregiver um, and other people in the child's life if we can. We're looking for tons of information. Then um, the diagnostician themselves will do some behavioral observations, either with the child playing with others and then definitely with the diagnostician themselves. And we have a lot of different ways to do this, standardized measures and then also just um, very good clinical um, judgment and use of, of different behavioral observations. And as you can imagine, that process takes quite a bit of time when done right. We're looking at all aspects of the person's development, language, you know, motor, adaptive behavior. It's pretty extensive. And then looking for um, ASD symptoms in and of themselves as well. And this diagnostic process can be done anytime, really. So there used to be a rule in the old DSM that the child would have had to have autism before three We've adjusted that since then because we've realized that many of the social communication challenges, especially that come with autism, may not emerge till older, a little bit older, but it definitely the symptoms have to be present in childhood. But then again, we can do a diagnosis at any time. I've, I've seen many adults and provided diagnoses in adulthood. I just have to retrospectively go back and ensure that some of these characteristics associated with the condition were present in childhood, if that makes sense. So once a child has been diagnosed with autism spectrum, um, we've talked a lot about how early intervention is the most beneficial. But what therapies are the best? So um, maybe talking a little bit about ABA or what that is um, or some of these other therapies that, that kids may get. There are many, many, many therapies available for individuals with autism and their families. Young children can often benefit from play-based therapies, occupational therapy, physical therapy, feeding therapy, you know, the, the list goes on. The strongest evidence base for therapies are from the field of applied behavior analysis, or you may have heard of called ABA. These are therapies from that field. ABA is a um, field of psychology. 
And then these approaches range from a very traditional structured approach, um, like um, you may have heard of discrete trial training, which is the very traditional first supported approach that comes from ABA, and to a more naturalistic behavioral approaches. And those, um, the more modern ones, combine the naturalistic behavior approach pieces from the ABA field, and they combine them what we know about developmental science. So um, a good example of this is the Early Start Denver model or ESDM, which um, again is a therapy that combines um, what we know from developmental science about how children learn and incorporating intervention intervention into daily activities and, and what we should be teaching at any point in time with the principles of applied behavior analysis and putting those things together in order to do intervention. And those are called naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions or NDBIs. And those are a little bit more updated version of these behavioral approaches. And then some other things that we didn't mention are, so for example, for children who um, have challenges communicating with verbal language, there are some approaches from the ABA field to target communication with augmentative and alternative communication systems. So combining these ABA principles, again, with um, other ways to communicate, like uh, using pictures or an iPad. But interventions, just with anything else, are really about match. So for autism, unfortunately, to make things even more complicated, there really is no one-size-fits-all approach to intervention. And, and that makes sense, actually, if you think about it, because all I, we just talked about how all autistic individuals are so different from each other. Um, so it is, it is kind of a tricky thing to find the right match for the person in front of you. And that's what we need to do when we're thinking about intervention. Speaking about specific matches, could you also talk about the role of other specific services like um, speech therapy, occupational therapy, those sorts of things? Um, what, what sort of role do they play? So we know, like, for example, you know, part of the hallmark characteristic of autism is these social communication challenges. So what speech therapy is really designed to do is uh, really use the principles of speech therapy and what we know work about speech and adjust it a bit sometimes for folks with autism to work on those social communication challenges. So maybe if, um, for example, the person in front of you has trouble with maintaining a conversation, we can practice that in the context of speech therapy or um, for a child who is is really having a lot of trouble getting the words out, um, a very young child, we will use speech therapy in partnership with other therapies to, to work on language and production. And then occupational therapists, for example, they work on a lot of things related to adaptive behavior. Um, and adaptive behavior is really about sort of moving through your world, doing things, right, getting things done. Occupational therapists work also on some of those sensory sensitivities of um, sort of helping the person navigate their sensory environment successfully or thinking about ways to facilitate those sensory interests that um, maybe the person's really seeking some sensory input. And so occupational therapists have really great ideas for that. But because autism is such a complex condition and it runs often with other things, it's really helpful to have a really good treatment team that are coming from lots of different disciplines to work together consistently to make a good program. So once a child reaches school age, what are the most important things that parents need to make sure are in place for them to succeed in school? School can be quite challenging for someone with autism. So Having a 504 or an IEP in place can be very helpful. 
Um, these are systems developed by the school to support students who may have um, particular needs or a particular classroom might be appropriate, a certain classroom placement. But really, you know, in the school setting, I find that even just small changes that can be outlined in something like a 504 IEP document um, can really make big effects for the child's everyday experience. As you can imagine, this sort of dynamic, busy classroom environment that's changing all the time can be really challenging for someone with, um, like, for example, with sensory sensitivities. So having access to something just as simple as noise-canceling headphones or a place to go to decompress um, is something very simple that can help a lot in the environment. Absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit more about this, but but talking to other parents who have been through it, maybe have a child that's a little bit older than their child or kind of talking about, you know, IEPs are something that we've talked about in previous episodes, but um, can be really challenging for parents to navigate. So having somebody to help you know what to ask for or things that have worked previously can be really helpful. There's a really great role of an advocate as well. So there's a lot of special education advocates out there who can be very helpful. Even going to one or two meetings with you um, can really help parents feel empowered and know what to ask for. Because like you said, it's really hard to know. It's all different based on the district that you're in, what is even available. So um, yeah, advocacy is very important for autism in general and especially in a school setting. And just to clarify in case we didn't say this, but IEP is Individual Educational Plan. Mm-hmm. Individualized education plan, yeah. And how about for older teens and young adults with autism spectrum? Are there resources for preparing for like independent living or specific job training or even college applications, things like that? Well, I would say this is largely dependent on location. So some parents or caregivers will report that they have a lot of access to, you know, services and 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 interventions designed for their particular child, but Many report that it's hard to get access to things such as this. And I would say as autistic individuals age, we find that sometimes it becomes more important to address some of the comorbid conditions that go along with autism. And so um, the approaches that are designed for those uh, conditions are have often to be adjusted some somewhat for, for use with someone with autism, like for example, anxiety is a is a frequent co-occurring condition. So we know um, cognitive behavior therapy works really well for anxiety, but it just might need some little tweaks for autism, like a more visually presented topics or um, the way you do exposures might be a little bit different. And so um, as, as autistic individuals age, I think that the most important thing is that um, techniques that we know are, that are out there that tend to work with typically developing folks may just need to be adjusted a little bit for use with adults. You mentioned the conditions that co-occur with autism. Can you talk more about that, about which conditions those are that are more frequently in kids with autism? Definitely. So we see that autism often co-occurs with medical conditions like genetic syndromes or seizure disorders or gastrointestinal or feeding difficulties. So we find that those um, conditions, not always, but tend to run with with autism um, or co-occur. And then other mental health conditions such as ADHD or anxiety also tend to co-occur, depression. And that even highlights what's really important about the comprehensive evaluation that can be done. So this is why you need a real comprehensive diagnostic evaluation. And that um, that is 
adjusted to over time so that someone is tracking that individual over time to see as um, as a whole person um, so that they can make sure to 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 really target some of these co-occurring conditions as they happen in real time. You know, I, I really want to wrap up talking about, you know, just the burden that this has on families sometimes um, and like get your thoughts on how to support families, individuals who may receive an autism diagnosis or who are going through this. Um, We talked a little bit about having an advocate, but what recommendations would you give for parents who are listening that that may just be kind of at the beginning of this diagnostic um, workup or, or receiving a diagnosis of autism? So there, there are many good programs out there to help families navigate the service system. It's just hard to find them sometimes. So like we at The Mind have um, the Family Navigator program, for example, and that program really allows families to be connected with other parents, also to have access to clinicians there to get information or advice about what's even out there. Um, so it's a lot of those navigator programs, many universities have those and they can be quite, or clinics have those, so they can be quite helpful. Also, like here locally, we have some agencies like Help Me Grow. They do lots of different things, but one of the great things they do is sort of connect providers and families. They're sort of a matchmaking service for services. And so those programs and systems exist out there and they're very helpful. But I do think it is important to remember that each family is so different. And so my best advice for families after I do a diagnostic eval is to find someone who can really um, be their point person or their coach getting through this process. And that person may change over time as the needs of their uh, child or, you know, teen or adult, you know, gets older. Um, but c- because the the goal is to find the right match for the person and their family, um, that there you have someone in your corner. So this could sometimes be the pediatrician or um, a child psychiatrist if they have one or the social worker at the clinic where you got the diagnosis. We have a whole parent coaching program, which is very useful um, service to have where the parent is matched with a coach and that person can coach the family through some of the strategies we use at intervention. And then they can also be the family's point person, like, what are we going to do next? Or um, many families get a service coordinator from regional center. Those service coordinators are often overtaxed, but they can they know a lot of information and they're they're able to really partner with the family sometimes and 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 get things done and, and the knowledge. So I, I do think the most important thing is to find someone who can be in your corner and that even if they don't know the answer, they can help you find it. And then it is again just important to remember that sometimes, you know, families will report, oh, I had a great experience with this OT. You should go see them. And if you go there and you feel like it's not as good of a match for your kid, that's kind of to be expected sometimes. And it's the really shopping around piece that's the most important. It doesn't mean that there's something necessarily negative about um, the mismatch. It just happens sometimes. Just like us, you know, with anything, it just might not be the right match. And being able to pursue that and actively um, be able to change when you need to is really the skill that most parents value over time. And they'll report later that, that they really um, valued having the strategies that helped empower them to get the right match. Um, and, you know, one last thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, having a child with autism is is not a burden. There, It does come with some challenges, but, um, you know, especially neurodiversity advocates, they would uh, say that uh, having an autistic brain is really just a different way of thinking. 
and can come with so many great strengths. And while our society tends to look at this in sort of a deficit model, it's really important to pay attention to the strengths that um, individuals with autism are bringing. And, and, and you can see like a really a lot of amazing things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and you can see them really excelling in different careers or even like STEM um, things or, or some, some people with more fixed interests. They are, are really geniuses and have really, um, I, I mean, I have loved getting to work with adults with, with autism in different things in, in medicine as well. And I know at the Mind Institute, you guys have a lot of people working there with autism. Is that correct? Yeah, having an autistic brain really gives you an advantage in a lot of areas because you can really look at the world in a different way, which wouldn't we all be so lucky. Well, let's summarize some of the main points from this second part of our autism discussion. Yeah, so we talked about the MCHAT, which is a screener your pediatrician will do at 18 and 24 months. But if you see any concerning signs for autism, which we discussed, it is totally appropriate to bring up your concerns earlier. And then we also talked about the diagnostic process and how this can be um, very long visits where the, the diagnosis, they want to make certain that um, the diagnosis is done accurately. And once a child has been diagnosed with autism spectrum, there's a wide array of therapies that will be beneficial to them. But we really discussed the importance of finding a provider that matches with your unique child and their experience. So it may take seeing a few different providers to find someone who's a good match. Some of the therapies that um, are utilized are applied behavioral, behavioral analysis or ABA or ESDM, which stands for Early Start Denver Model. We talked about the importance of um, services at schools also. And um, services for preparing your child for adulthood. And how this can be very challenging for parents also in terms of the resources and making sure that they get the services that they need. But individuals with autism also have so many unique talents to offer to society. And so all of us, parents, families, providers need to do our best to really um, encourage these interests and, and help them grow into the most um, happy and well-rounded person possible. And that reminds me of a joke. <laughs> Does it? What do you call an autistic kid that's good at art? What? Artistic. Uh, okay, we'll see if we leave that one in. <laughs> I like that one. I thought it was good on several levels, right? Autistic, artistic. But it's also seeing the autistic kid, not labeling them with autism, right? It's like they're more than that, right? Okay, sure. Yeah, okay. We can leave it in. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 